I acknowledge with gratitude that I'm a settler who lives and creates on the unceded traditional territories of the Semiamu First Nation, which lies within the shared territories of the Kwantlen, Katsi, and Stolo First Nations. Today, we're talking about what we can do to increase the chances of getting an accurate diagnosis. Welcome to the ADHD-Friendly Lifestyle. I'm your host, Moira Maben, a woman, mom, educator, and I have late-diagnosed ADHD. This is the place to practice getting rid of guilt or shame and spending more time with our strengths and passions. There are things that I wish I had known about my ADHD sooner that are allowing me to make different decisions to make my life more ADHD-friendly, and I want to share them with you. For show notes, including next steps, resources, and articles on this topic, visit ADHDFriendlyLifestyle.com. When ADHD comes up as a thing on the horizon in our lives, especially if there's been no discussion or awareness of it earlier in life, it can come as quite a surprise to others around us, including medical and mental health professionals. Even when we get a diagnosis and feel a momentous shift in our own self-perception and identity to others, we are the same person we always were. This is understandable to a degree for some in our lives, but for the medical health professionals, we are looking to for support, direction, and answers. That lack of insight into who we are and how we tick, combined with the general lack of knowledge of ADHD in adults, can lead to situations that are um, less than ideal. The stress of constantly feeling less than, of feeling overwhelmed, stupid, fearing rejection, these can become toxic forces in our lives, contributing to poor self-care, depression, vulnerability to abuse, self-harm, suicide, and even earlier mortality. Enough is enough. Today, I'm continuing to highlight the work and passion of psychologist Dr. Ellen B. Littman, PhD, who, like other leading experts on ADHD in women, is exasperated, wondering how much more disconcerting these consequences need to be before the concerns of women with ADHD get the attention they deserve. In the previous episode, I spoke about how women with ADHD present differently and that sometimes our ADHD can be discounted because we're too good at something, but that's just not true. A common issue many people with ADHD may face in getting treatment is being told you only want meds, especially if you have managed, despite all the challenges, to secure a life, position, or academic pursuit that has now created a tipping point for you that you just can't manage anymore. Many of us who are late diagnosed, and especially women, often experience a tipping point when there's some sort of hormonal shift in our lives or when we simply can no longer keep up with the demands placed on us. Things that worked before don't anymore. We're drowning. So, um, yeah, perhaps some medication for my neurobiological condition would be great. This wasn't part of the conversation when I was incapacitated with my autoimmune disease or when I was misdiagnosed with depression. Yet somehow, suddenly, now, I'm not responsible enough to manage my healthcare, treatment, or even prescriptions? We are talking about our quality and length in life. To quote the magnificent Jason Sudeikis of Ted Lasso fame, there's a big difference in being ignorant and curious and ignorant and acting like a know-it-all. If a prescriber is thoughtful, doesn't it stand to reason that someone could start a small trial and then use the objective measures, meaning the checklists that are readily available online, including my website, to evaluate side effects and benefits? Do these same prescribers follow the best practice protocol of increasing medication dosages until side effects outweigh benefits? 
Do they discuss with us the multitude of stimulant options, many of which are not addictive? And how about non-stimulants, their role in helping emotional regulation, sleep, and frustration tolerance? There are people who abuse medications, but most of us don't. They are our lifeline. If you don't have a medical professional who is willing to see you, hear you, and work with you, it's time to move on. So I'm also continuing to shake my head because most women with ADHD are also treated for depression or anxiety without a formal evaluation and the icing on the cake without considering ADHD. That's exactly what happened with me. I turned to my family doctor in the years following the birth of my second child, desperate for help. Initially, we tried sleeping pills. Maybe I was just too wound up to get rested. I'd been in therapy, was a regular exerciser, had pursued meditation and yoga. So she kindly explained to me, when we've tried all the things and they are not working, then we consider medication for depression or anxiety. I tried it. It helped. I was still often overwhelmed and tired, but it was better. Eight years like that. I also saw an endocrinologist for my autoimmune disease. My energy and challenges with sleep and overwhelm were frequent topics. Not once was I ever formally diagnosed with anxiety or depression. In the last four years, while seeking an ADHD diagnosis, suffering a brain injury, and receiving diagnosis and treatment for a binge eating disorder, never have I met the criteria for anxiety or depression. Yes, I show signs of it. After getting my ADHD diagnosis, my family doctor shared with me she had never had an adult patient with ADHD in over 25 years. What the fuck? And that she would never have considered it for me. I am still so saddened by that. Conservatively, that's 5% of her patient list that was missing out on treatment. In the previous episode, I also discussed challenges with managing our emotions. That they may be right for the situation, but the dial can be turned up way too high on how we are experiencing them. And that there is treatment for that too. I also went into more detail about women with ADHD having heightened central nervous systems, leading to headaches, sleep issues, and many sensory issues with things like sound or touch. Everyone who is experiencing the bare minimum of what I just described needs to be evaluated for ADHD. Yes, it could be many other things. And I had increasing health concerns that are comorbid with ADHD, thyroid disease, sleep apnea, signs of depression, anxiety, but it could also be ADHD. It is rampant in my family, and no one was diagnosed prior to 2016. I can look back at relatives, both living and deceased, and clearly recognize their symptoms now. I will never know if my need for medication for symptoms of anxiety or depression would exist if my ADHD had been recognized or treated earlier. I'm grateful I have meds that help. Women, and I suspect all genders, with undiagnosed, late diagnosed, or untreated ADHD are more likely to be dealing with low self-esteem, which makes it harder to ask for help. We also experience more anxiety, depression, and psychological distress in just trying to function and survive. So it will come as no surprise that this has led to a very high rate of women being treated with medications for anxiety or depression before being diagnosed with ADHD, largely due to a lack of knowledge of why and how to evaluate women for ADHD. What I think any of us deserve is not to be mistreated or misdiagnosed in the first place by including a thorough ADHD evaluation to figure out what could be a complex presentation of symptoms.
Well, there is evidence-based research on the ways women with ADHD experience greater challenges and misunderstanding of their symptoms that prevents or makes it more difficult to receive a diagnosis. It's time to change that by using this information gained from research to help ourselves and practitioners to increase the chances of getting the right diagnosis and for clinicians to increase the accuracy in making diagnoses. The two most important factors as patients we need to know are, number one, go prepared to ask for the possibility of underlying ADHD be considered. And number two, when we describe our struggles, focus on those with evidence-based symptoms. You don't need to have issues in all areas. If we refine and narrow our scope when considering our challenges to the areas that have solid research showing how they present, you'll help your practitioner evaluate your symptoms. Please remember, as I mentioned these 18 areas, that you do not have struggles in all these areas. I'm going to start with the ones that are more self-explanatory, and remember they will also be listed on my website, ADHDfriendlylifestyle.com, and in related articles by Dr. Lipman. So these 18 areas are areas where there is proven research with a connection to ADHD in women. One of them is a reluctance to read. Second, episodes of rage or tears. Third, frequent irritability. Four, picking behaviors. Five, intense premenstrual symptoms. Exhaustion, eating dysregulation, chronic anxiety, chronic relationship problems, perfectionistic behavior. And that doesn't mean doing things perfectly. It means feeling like things are never good enough. Substance dependence, sensory hypersensitivities, chronic restlessness internalizing symptoms. Now that is one that I spoke about in the last episode, low self-esteem, a late onset in symptoms for women, particularly around hormonal shifts in life, inattentive symptoms. Having emotional dysregulation is a key feature of ADHD, but it was taken out of the diagnostic criteria in North America, but it is still a defining feature in ADHD. Sometimes when we don't know what the issues possibly could be. We don't know that the things that we're experiencing actually could be related to our ADHD. Not everything is, but so many things are. So I hope this list is helpful, not in overwhelming you, not in creating more work for you to do, but maybe just to sit and reflect sometime about, holy crap, I am anxious all the time, or I never can get enough rest, or I have really light sensitivity for my entire life. Things like that just might help get your diagnosis. I'm not going to leave clinicians out of this, as we know they are critical to our well-being. Getting information that is timely and trustworthy is hard. Time is short, and like all of us, medical professionals are motivated by their own interests and abilities. And if knowing about ADHD is not your doctor's jam, then there'll be much they don't know. For clinicians, to improve diagnostic accuracy, there are evidence-based issues to explore in their evaluations of patients. For us, we have to take responsibility of our own health care. We need to be aware of these issues as well. If we find that they're not being considered when we're being evaluated, that's a huge red flag. That there is a proven gender bias in how ADHD is diagnosed, treated, supported, and understood is an awareness that needs to be at the very beginning. 
Another important evidence-based consideration is to shift from a behavioral model of how ADHD presents to an impairment model, meaning more emphasis on how the impairments can affect us rather than how we're overtly behaving. Remember I mentioned tipping points? Due to the changing state of hormones in anyone who has ovaries, our body and brain chemistry, a person with a cycle will present for evaluation very differently while menstruating compared to while in another phase of their cycle. Women can have a later appearance of symptoms when they can no longer hide or manage them as expectations increase with age. That means for some of us, there may be minimal childhood symptoms, but for all of us, our impairments worsen over time due to those lovely hormones and other reasons I've mentioned. So what to do if you and your healthcare provider are trying to tease apart a complex presentation, especially if you have a subtle, less impaired presentation? Well, consider those internalized qualitative impairments. Distinguish between primary and secondary anxiety or depression. See if there's any comorbidities secondary to ADHD or history of impulsive sexual behavior. Again, it is extremely important to consider how motivated women with ADHD are at masking our symptoms. This may mean a subjective plus objective measures, including trauma-informed interviews, can be helpful. As patients, long-term monitoring is needed to tease this all apart. Despite growing understanding about ADHD in general, understanding ADHD in women, and when or how to include evidence-based methods to consider ADHD diagnosis in women remains misunderstood. By encouraging our practitioners to increase their knowledge as well as building our own, we can expect and demand that we get the health care that we deserve. Okay, you've done the hard work by staying to the end. Your reward? Here are the main takeaways from today's episode. Despite growing understanding about ADHD in general, ADHD in women and getting an accurate diagnosis still remains a challenge for many, and it can include unique challenges such as being asked to justify our experiences, needs, and even diagnosis when our ADHD is different from the stereotype. Also, being diagnosed with or treated for anxiety or depression without a formal evaluation or even considering ADHD. Third, you're dealing with a prescriber who seems intent on guarding access to meds, not your well-being. If you don't have a medical professional who's willing to see you, hear you, and work with you, it's time to move on. Finally, to increase the chances of getting the right diagnosis, both women and clinicians need to up our knowledge about ADHD in women. Until this knowledge is common, we may be at the forefront of information about ADHD. We must lean on each other and share what we know. When we visit the doctor, we need to be prepared to ask that ADHD be considered and shape our discussion around symptoms that there is already strong research in. If you don't feel strong enough to do this on your own, how and where can you ask for help? If your healthcare provider is willing to learn, you can share this podcast or the many related links on my website. In the following episode, we will discuss what supportive treatment can look like. I hope you've enjoyed today's show and would love to hear your thoughts. To get in touch, you can write me an email at ask at ADHDfriendlylifestyle.com. Connect with me on my website, Instagram, and Facebook at ADHD Friendly Lifestyle or Twitter at ADHDFL. Every episode has a website page with show notes, transcripts, next steps, resources, and articles related to the topic. To get these, visit 
ADHDFriendlyLifestyle.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best way is to subscribe on the podcast player of your choice and by taking the time to rate and review it there. And here are other podcasts for your listening pleasure. On Hacking Your ADHD, Will Curb gives tips, tools, and insights. Brendan Mahan hosts ADHD Essentials, focusing on parenting and education. Thanks for listening. See you later.